Good morning, church. Yikes. So it's not a good morning. Is it a good morning or not? Good morning, church. Were you not paying attention to the song that we just sang? I know that's a new one, but just read the words. My goodness. It's a, it's a good, good message and a great song. Well, as we, as we turn our attention to the preaching hour this morning, we're, we're going to take a minute and just sort of regroup as we've had two weeks of ordinations, and it's been a tremendous blessing to me to see our church um, pursue the biblical model of church leadership as they ordain additional uh, elders and deacons, and it's been a great time of reflection just on uh, what, what biblical church leadership looks like, and we've had the opportunity to affirm uh, men to serve the church in teaching as well as serve the church in, in the practical hands-on matters that need to be done um, around here. And that's been a tremendous blessing to me, and I'm sure it has been to you as well. As we sort of turn our attention back to the book of Colossians, as, as Evan um, prayed earlier, uh, we will be in chapter 3 today. So go ahead and take your, your Bibles and turn to chapter 3. The first 17 verses of this chapter is sort of a transitional section that takes us from the theological um, teaching and the doctrinal teaching of Paul into the practical application of that. And just to, to be sure that we don't set up any, any false dichotomies here or false distinctions, this is not to say that theology is not practical, and it's not to say that practical teaching does not require some theological foundation. It certainly does. All biblical theology is practical, and all practical biblical teaching is theological. But when we say we're moving from the theological to the practical, what we're acknowledging is that Paul tends to lay a doctrinal basis, a doctrinal foundation, before moving into the direct commands of how we are to um, interact uh, on a horizontal basis between, between sometimes uh, families, sometimes uh, between brothers, um, between uh, ourselves and the world. Paul has lots of instruction for us, and, and that instruction is always rooted in a theological basis. So that basis that we've established in the, uh, in the first couple chapters of Colossians really began in the first chapter with the preeminence of Christ. And you can remember several sermons, I'm sure, that dealt with the, the fact that Christ is all in all. Christ is the preeminent one. Flowing from that, we saw the first part of chapter 2 um, teach us that our justification is found only in Christ. Paul emphasized that we are dead in our sin. And it is only when we are made alive in Christ that we are truly saved. We saw that in that salvation, God makes a legal declaration of righteousness. And that declaration that he places upon those whom he saves is based in the perfect obedience of Christ, his substitutionary death, and of course, his triumphant resurrection, which we will celebrate here in just a few weeks. We'll remember that for the believer, our sins have been nailed to the cross of Christ, that he has borne our guilt in every way. We were also commanded in the second chapter to reject ceremonial observances as the basis for our righteousness. Christ can't be all in all if we feel like we need to contribute to that righteousness through ceremonial observances. And we saw that, that these observances pointed to Christ and that they have been fulfilled in Christ, that they do not now nor have they ever contributed to our justification. Our justification is in Christ alone. So in summary, these first two chapters of Colossians have articulated what it means to be placed in Christ by faith alone. 
So having established these theological realities, Paul will begin in chapter 3, as we've seen back before the ordination uh, services took place. We saw that Paul begins to lay out what it looks like for our behavior to match our new identity in Christ. Um, John preached that, that there are certain things that we are to put off, that we're to, to, to strip away, that, that these were characteristics of our old self, our old identity in sin. But having been identified with Christ, being placed into Christ, there's no place for these things. The things that we were told to put away include immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. It's quite a list. I don't think we could find any sin that we might be inclined toward that, that we can't trace to one of those things that we're told to put off as believers in Christ. Today, as we look at verses 12 through 15, we're going to see that we're not only called to put off certain things, but we are also called to put on things, to replace these things that we're putting off with a, I'm going to call this a new attire. We're going to use the illustration of taking off a garment and putting on a new garment, taking off the old and putting on the new. We're going to attire ourselves differently as Christians. You know, this is the time of year where baseball begins. And around our house, we're big Braves fans, right? So we, over the last couple of years at our house, we've seen um, a couple of uh, big-name players be moved from the Braves to other teams. A couple years ago, we saw Freddie Freeman go to the Dodgers. And just last year, or, or this, uh, this year, I guess, um, to my chagrin and to James Douglas's delight, we saw Dansby Swanson go from the Braves to the Cubs. Um, now, th these players when they have their baseball identity changed, when they go from being a Brave to a Dodger or a Brave to a Cub, it would be ludicrous to think that they would take their old uniform with them. Okay, if Dansby Swanson shows up at the Cubs training camp with, uh, with his Braves jersey on, that's not going to go very well. He's not going to be allowed to do that. Um, and, and in the same way, when our spiritual identity is changed, we don't get to keep our old uniform. We are called to take off that old attire and adopt a new uniform, a new attire in Christ. Well, for those of you who don't care for the baseball analogy, let me give you a couple from Scripture. In Isaiah 61, we read, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. Listen to this. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And then, of course, the, uh, the passage from Ephesians 6, where we see a soldier being dressed for battle as he puts on the whole armor of God. We see him adorn the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. So we, we have, we have uh, I think, precedent in the Bible to... To, to understand that anytime we take on a new identity, we should also take on a new appearance that, that demonstrates that new identity. And I'd like to use this idea of taking on a new attire today as a basis for understanding um, Colossians 3, 12 through 15. And we're going to look at five points today that lay out what it means for us to take on this new attire and five points that are associated with putting on something new as we put away the old, the old self. And those five points are these. In verse 12, uh, we'll see the basis for our new attire. Also in, in verse 12, we're going to look at the beauty of our new attire. 
Verse 13 will teach us about the benefits of our new attire. Verse 14 will see the bond that's created by our new attire. And then in verse uh, 15, we'll, we'll finish this, this section by recognizing the blessing of our new attire. Okay, so those, um, I, I don't try to do this all the time, but in this case, it was just too easy to alliterate these five points. I know John would approve. So that's going to be sort of our outline, our, our five points that we're going to examine as we work through this text this morning. So let us read together then, beginning in Colossians 3, verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy, beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let us pray this morning. Our Father and our God, as we come to you this morning, we approach the time of preaching of your word. And Lord, it is a humbling thing for me to stand before your people and proclaim your truth. I ask, Father, that you you give us clarity of thought, that that you guide our thinking, that you guide our understanding of your word, that we may see the beauty and the simplicity of scripture, that we may bring that to bear on our lives so that we may live lives that are wholly committed to you. God, protect me from error this morning. Prohibit me from saying anything uh, that would be, that would any way take away from, from the, the clear truth of your word. And Lord, help us just to glory in you this morning as you teach us from scripture. We pray this in Jesus Christ. Amen. So beginning with our first point, I want us to look at the basis of our new attire the basis of our new attire. Just that first phrase at the beginning of verse 12. Put on then... As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Okay, we're going to get to what we're going to put on. But for right now, let's just look at this first phrase as the basis for our new attire. I want us to notice the if-then nature of this statement. Notice that if you are chosen by God, if you are God's chosen ones, then you are to put on certain attributes, which we'll get to. The basis, then, for our being called to put on the following characteristics is our position in God. How, are we, how do we find our position in God? Well, we find ourselves there because we are placed in Christ by God's choosing. Now, I'd like to say just a few words about this idea of being chosen by God. No one can ever achieve their position in Christ. They always receive that position. So we we believe uh, strongly in the doctrine of justification by faith, not by works. So when we talk about being in Christ, we're not talking about something that we have achieved. We talk about something that we have received. This happens only because we are chosen by God. The King James Version renders this passage, put on therefore as the elect of God. Okay, And the opening of Paul's letter to the Ephesians actually speaks to this at length. And I'd like for us to turn there and go to Ephesians chapter 1, please. Ephesians chapter 1. Despite the efforts of some to reinterpret and misconstrue its meaning, Paul's writing in Ephesians is explicit. And I'd like for us to pick up in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. 
Chapter 1, verse 3 of Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Here, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved. In this text, as in many others, the much maligned doctrine of election is unmistakable and irrefutable. No amount of twisting or contorting the scripture can remove this fact. Let me point out another thing for us to notice as we, as we compare Ephesians 1 to Colossians 3. Notice in Ephesians 1, 4, we see an indication that God has chosen us, not arbitrarily, not for some unnamed purpose, but for the purpose of being holy and blameless. Notice the similarity of that language to the, the language of Colossians 3.12, where we're told that we are God's chosen ones, or again, as, as the KJV would say, the elect of God. We are, we are elect, and we are made holy and beloved. So notice the similarity between holy and beloved with Ephesians 1.4 that teaches us that we are to be holy and blameless before him. How is it, how is it possible for fallen sinful creatures to ever be considered holy and blameless or holy and beloved of God. Well, as Paul has already laid out for us in the previous two chapters of Colossians, that only happens through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and that new birth that Paul has described. Think back to Colossians 2.13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So this morning we can confidently say, if you've come to faith in Christ, it is because God chose you unto salvation before the foundation of the world, that you may be holy and blameless, or that you may be holy and beloved. So it is God's choosing in Colossians 3.12 that forms the basis for this command that we put on a new attire. Let's take a look now at the beauty of this new attire that we are called to. Point two, the beauty of our new attire. Continuing in verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. The beauty of our new attire is demonstrated in these characteristics. We are commanded as God's chosen ones to adopt compassionate and kind-hearted disposition toward others. We're instructed then that these compassionate hearts will produce kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And this is a very beautiful thing. All of these um, beautiful attributes that we see naturally flow from a compassionate and kind heart. Okay, I, I want us to really, really settle in on that for just a second. Um, I want to I establish sort of a basic definition for each of these traits, for each of these characteristics. And I want us to observe in Scripture that the expressions of these, um, uh, of these characteristics that we are to put on are actually expressions of the divine character of God. We can see parallels in Scripture of God himself, uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, demonstrating all of these attributes to us. So our call, based on our identity in Christ, because God chose us in him to be holy and beloved, 
these characteristics we, we receive from the author of these characteristics, who is God. So let's look quickly, uh, one, one, uh, one characteristic at a time. First of all, kindness. We're going to define this simply as a general expression of beneficence or goodwill. A general expression of beneficence or goodwill. In reference to God the Father, we read in Psalm 145, verse 8, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. So we see in this verse the, the common grace of God that is spilled out of his character on all of creation. And we are to adopt that same type of kindness, that same type of agape love that we see from God the Father. We are to, to adopt that as our new attire once we are placed into the body of Christ. The second thing that we see we are to adopt is humility. And we might simply define humility as adopting a lowly position that does not allow for pride. Adopting a lowly position that does not allow for personal pride. In reference to God the Son, we look to Philippians 2. And I'd like for you to turn there. This is a longer section, a longer passage, a few verses. And I want you to read this with me, Philippians 2. I want us to see what it looks like when God the Son demonstrated humility for us to imitate, for us to follow. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. As we consider the humility of Jesus Christ... Philippians 2, 5 reads, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." I think sometimes we fail to recognize the level of humility that Jesus Christ demonstrated simply by taking on a human form, simply by stepping into this earth that is marred by sin and wickedness and exposing his perfect holiness, the perfect holiness of God, uh, exposing that to the, the, the awful fallen sin of this world. And he did so uh, not, not to come here and lord his deity over us. Notice what it says, by taking the form of a servant, he was born in the likeness of men. In some sense, which is mysterious to me, and we don't have time to exposit this, we also see in verse 7 of Philippians 2 that he emptied himself. And that, and that idea of emptying, to me, brings up a lot of questions, Christological questions. But for, for our purposes today, let's just see that and understand that as, as an extreme example of the humility that we are called to. Okay? We will never, ever, ever um, be able to uh, completely and perfectly imitate the humility of Christ. But that is our standard. That is our goal. We see that. Well, continuing in Colossians, we see that meekness is another characteristic that we are to adopt. Meekness. And we'll define that for today simply as gentleness or a willingness to endure injury. Meekness is a gentleness and a willingness to endure injury. And we see this in Galatians 5 as one of the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 reads, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
self-control. Against such things there is no law. So in regards to God the Holy Spirit, one of the fruits that we see in our own lives as a result of being controlled by the Holy Spirit is this idea of meekness and gentleness. And then, of course, all of these things um, come together to form uh, what we would call patience. We, we see all of these characteristics sort of summed up in the idea of patience. And for today, we will, um, we will define patience simply as long-suffering, slow to anger, bearing with slights, insults, or attacks from others. This idea of being long-suffering, suffering well, enduring um, enduring any perceived slights, enduring insult from others in such a way that we do not retaliate, that we do not find a need to strike back, that we, because Christ has taken on such slights and such insults, we imitate him in our ability to overlook, um, to overlook these, these small things. Patience, we see in Second Peter, um, is one of the keys to our salvation. Consider Second Peter 3, verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. So we see that this idea of patience is essential to God offering salvation to us. Without patience, there would be no toleration for sin. And if, if the perfectly holy God can demonstrate patience toward humanity to the point that he sends his son to pay for sin, Certainly, we can embrace this idea of patience with one another. Well, if we look at the, the sum total of all of these attributes, I think what we find here is a beautiful picture of a lived-out Christianity. We can all imagine that if we adopt these characteristics, if we put these on as we're commanded to in Colossians, we will see that we are attiring ourselves um, with, with, a, uh, with a, a series of, of characteristics that will very clearly and very explicitly point others to Christ. Because remember, it's our position in Christ that allows for the putting on of these, of, of these characteristics. Well, point three in our sermon today is the benefit of our new attire. The benefit of our new attire. Let's read together in verse 13. We see that we are to bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, we are to forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So the compassionate heart that produces kindness, humility, meekness, and patience leads us to bear with one another in a spirit of forgiveness. So we're going to say that the benefit of this new attire is that of forgiveness among brothers. As we have received forgiveness from Christ, we are to extend that forgiveness to others. And what this really means is this benefit of forgiveness is not readily available to, nor should it be expected from, non-believers. Think about this for just a second. If we are to exercise forgiveness in the way that we have been forgiven, for those who have not been forgiven, they have no real understanding of forgiveness. Christians are to exercise forgiveness in a way that is distinctly different from the world. How many times have we heard someone say, maybe jokingly, maybe seriously, I think there's more seriousness this, in, in this than people might imagine, but I'll forgive you, but I won't forget. Right? We see people claim that sometimes. Um, that's the, that's the, the typical tendency of unregenerate people to forgive in a superficial way. Well, as believers, we're called to a different level, a different standard of forgiveness. 
as we offer forgiveness in the way that we have been forgiven. So the question must be asked, how have we been forgiven in Christ? Well, I think, I think three points speak to that. First of all, we have been forgiven in Christ freely. There are no conditions or stipulations in our salvation. We have been forgiven of sin freely. Therefore, we are to extend forgiveness without conditions and without stipulations. So many times we want to set up parameters as though we're negotiating a peace treaty in our, in our seeking and granting of forgiveness. But if we forgive in the way Christ has forgiven us, we simply freely forgive. Secondly, in Christ, we are fully forgiven. We're fully forgiven. We are to extend full or complete forgiveness. When Christ died on the cross and when he nailed our sins to the cross, he didn't just take some of them and leave us in other sins. Christ has forgiven all of our sins, past, present, and future. All of that has been nailed to the cross. So as we follow his pattern of forgiveness, we must necessarily fully or completely forgive those who have wronged us. And then the third point regarding the forgiveness of Christ is we are to forgive permanently. Permanently. If we forgive freely, if we forgive fully, those sins then are done. We do not call those to account again. It, it, it would be like when you, when you pay off your, your truck um, three years after the fact. They come back and say, hey, you know what, let's, uh, let's pick those payments up again for a few months. That, that would be obviously unjust and unfair because that, that debt has been paid. That debt has been removed. Uh, It's been accounted for. It it does not exist anymore. So just like Christ casts our sins as far as the east is from the west, when he removes our sin debt, when he completely and totally and permanently fulfills that sin debt, we are to forgive sins against us in the same way that Christ has permanently wiped away and forgiven our sins. This benefit of forgiveness that we see uh, in Colossians here in, in verse 13 is also not optional. Consider this for just a second. In verse 13, we see, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Not so you also should forgive, or maybe uh, you, you also, it would be helpful if you would forgive, or maybe it's, it's a positive thing, it's a helpful thing. No, we are commanded in Scripture to forgive. We must forgive. Free, full, and permanent forgiveness is the command of Scripture, and anything less than this is disobedient, and it is inconsistent with the new attire that we should be wearing as believers. This forgiveness, obviously, is a great benefit to the body of Christ, and it contributes to the unity that we are called to pursue. Speaking of unity, our next point in the text is an absolute imperative if we are to enjoy close fellowship in Christ. Look with me to Colossians 3, verse 14. We're going to see our fourth point here, and that is that uh, we're going to talk about the bond of our new attire. The bond of our new attire. We read in verse 14, Above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Above all things, we are to put on love. Love then becomes the bond which unites everything within the body of Christ. Now, the culture that we currently live in today, uh, that we find ourselves in, is in a state of confusion about many things. But nothing is more confused in our modern culture today than the concept of love. Okay? Just think 
for for a second about some of the slogans that are going around. We've probably heard the slogan "Love is love," and we we know what the implications of that are um, with with the uh, the agenda of the of the LGBTQ alphabet group and the and the transgender ideologies that are out there. Uh, the claim is unless you love everything that everyone says is their identity, somehow you're not loving. Or that what they're saying is we don't have the right to characterize love in a certain way. We have to open the door to all types of desires as being legitimate expressions of love. Fortunately for us, God has written a book, and he has given us a manual with clear instruction about love. He has defined love clearly and extensively. I'd like for us to turn to 1 Corinthians 13. Um, several, several times I just sort of quote passages and, and ask you to write them down, but, but several of these I want us to turn to and put our eyes on together. And 1 Corinthians 13 is one of these as we try to uh, get our minds around what it means to love because love is going to be the bond that we find in our new attire. I want us to notice in this exhortation um, given towards love to the Corinthians, we see all the aspects of our new attire that we are called to put on. We're going to find those in 1 Corinthians 13. Let's begin looking at, um, at verse 4. Time will not permit us to go through this entire chapter, although that would, be, that would be a great use of our time. What I want us to identify as we read through verses 4 and 5 of 1 Corinthians 13 is the presence of all of these things we have been called to put on. And we see that all within uh, Paul's definition of love. Okay? 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient. Okay? There's our patience. And kind. There you go. There's two of them. Patience and kindness right there. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. There's our humility that we see in Colossians 3. Finally, it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Well, there's your meekness. Okay, so in two verses, Paul has encapsulated all of these things that we are called to put on as a new attire of our new position in Christ. When we put on love, we naturally put on kind hearts. The compassionate hearts that we are to, to, we're to put on demonstrates kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We all know the well-known song, I'm sure they will know we are Christians by our love. Right? We don't sing that one around here very much, but it's a, the, the, the theme of that song is actually um, uh, very good for us to remember. It's a reference to John 13. In John 13, 35, we see, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. So why is it now? And I want us to think through this a little bit together. Why is it that love so clearly distinguishes Christians from non-Christians? It has to be because love is the single most identifiable trait of the Christian. Next passage to turn to. Please go to 1 John 4. 1 John 4. I want to bounce around here just a little bit. What I'd like to do is make the case for you that if we are to identify ourselves as Christians, we must demonstrate this single most identifiable trait, and that being love. That is the bond of our connection in Christ, and it is, the, it is the, the most obvious trait of our new attire. Looking at 1 John 4, I want to go to verse 7. 1 John 4 and verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, 
because God is love. Now, notice some things about this passage as it relates to love, which is our bond in Christ. We are commanded to love one another. Simply put, let us love one another. Again, not an option. And we're called to do that because any love we demonstrate comes from God. Let us love one another. Love is from God. In other words, we do not have genuine love apart from God. Again, this love is the most identifiable characteristic of the the follower of Christ. Anyone who then does not demonstrate love is clearly not born of God and therefore not a Christian. Now that seems like maybe a harsh statement because we all can find ourselves in moments of not being loving one toward another. Okay, So I'm not saying that we do this perfectly. But if the pattern of your life does not indicate an attitude of compassion and love, particularly towards your brothers and sisters in Christ, you have cause for concern. You need to evaluate the position of your heart. Now, there's one other phrase in here at the end of verse 8 that I want us to look at and think about in regards to love. Notice the very last statement is, God is love. Now, that, that should strike you as, as interesting Even when I typed that phrase into my computer, the grammar check came up and told me, wait a minute, you can't use it that way. It's offering me ways to to change this because I didn't put an object of love. I just put that God is love. And English grammar doesn't really have a category for, for one identifying himself as love. How is it that the term love can be um, assigned by scripture directly to God? You know, when I use the term love, I have to have a direct object of that love, right? I have to say, I love Rebecca. I love my children. I love North Hills Church, right? So I'm directing love to someone. How foolish would it be and how illogical would it be for me to stand here and tell you, I am love, right? That, that's, that's nonsensical, okay? I would like to suggest to you that it's only through an understanding of the Trinity, and the perfection of the Godhead that we can understand how God can say in Scripture that He is love. Take notice of this. Eternally, before the creation of the world, the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, enjoyed perfect unity and perfect agape love among those members of the Trinity. So we see this plurality of the Trinity and the unity of the Trinity. We see the three persons, and we see the absolute perfect unity of those three persons, producing love without a direct object. God did not need to create a world in order to demonstrate love. God, within the Godhead, perfectly enjoyed and demonstrated love. This is why we see um, in um, in John, First uh, John four seven, that love is from God. The love that we experience on this earth, in a common sense as well as a specific saving sense, is the love that spills over from the source of all love, and that is our triune God. So as we think through this and we we recognize how important it is for us to demonstrate love, we really are caught up short when we try to imagine the origin and the source of all love being the love experienced between the members of the Godhead, extended, overflowing to us, and ultimately finding its, its complete consummation in the sacrifice and the atonement of Jesus Christ for sinners. It's a beautiful picture and a beautiful way to understand 
love in this Trinitarian sense. Therefore, love, we can say, exists as a function of God's immutable character and the eternal relationships of the three persons of the Godhead. And with this elevated and heightened view of love, I think we understand why Scripture tells us, above all, put on love, because this is the bond of our new attire. This is, this is how we demonstrate and how we show that we are from God, because we, we, we extend the same kind of love that He has given to us. Okay, well, the, f- the final point of our text today is taken from verse 15. And this point will be the blessing of our new attire. Verse 15, the blessing of our new attire. We read in verse 15, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. When we put on these things and we clothe ourselves in this way as the elect of God, we receive incredible blessing. And that blessing comes in the peace of Christ, which rules within our hearts. Again, notice this blessing is based in our justification in Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Romans 5.1 tells us, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We're no longer children of wrath. We're no longer at enmity with God. We are at peace with God because we have been justified by faith. It is an unspeakable blessing to be called by God into his body. And what we are doing today on the Lord's Day and what we do every Sunday on the Lord's Day is a demonstration of our togetherness, of our unity, of the blessing of peace with God. When we come together, we worship. When we come together, we sit under the preached word of God. When we come together, we sing, we pray, we study scripture together. Of course, we, as we will in just a few minutes, we come to the communion table and, and remember the, the, the atoning work of Christ on our behalf. We are united every Lord's Day in these ordinary means of grace. These means have been given to the body of Christ into which we have been called. So as we consider these things, the, the, the final exhortation that we see in verse 15 is that we, uh, that we adopt an attitude of thanksgiving. If we can't be thankful for the greatness of God's salvation, if we can't be grateful for the blessings that he has given us in Christ, we are absolutely not thinking clearly about what God has done, what Christ has accomplished. So in conclusion today, when we are saved, our spiritual identity is changed. And at that point, we are said to be in Christ We're instructed by God then, based on our being placed into the body of Christ, we're instructed to adopt a new attire that then matches our new identity. The basis of our new attire is the fact that God has chosen us and placed us in Christ. The beauty of this attire is found in the things that we are called to put on, namely compassionate hearts, which are characterized by the divine attributes of kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. The benefit of this new attire is the forgiveness that naturally flows from these compassionate hearts. And the bond we experience then within the body of Christ is a product of putting on love, which flows from God himself. All of this then results in a blessing of peace in Christ, for which we are eternally thankful. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you again 
thank you for this passage of scripture. Thank you for the, the clarity with which you speak to us in your word. And Lord, I pray for uh, the guidance of your Holy Spirit for each of us, that we would submit ourselves to your will, that we would submit ourselves to your commands, and that we would adopt for ourselves a new attire as believers, that we would be continually putting off the old things that identify us with sin and adopting the characteristics, the divine characteristics that identify us with Christ. Father, we, we may do this, Lord. We ask that you help us to do this, that we, can, uh, that we can live lives that scream the mercy of Christ, that we can live lives that scream out to a dying world the gospel. Father, give us, give us boldness to live in this new attire. Give us willingness to make sacrifices where necessary. Give us, uh, give us the humility, Father, to submit to your commands as we seek to live for you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.